don't talk too much. So talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I'm Eric John. Of course, before we get into it, I've got to tell you about my friend John Scombato over at Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club Soda is making the best artisan soda in the world. That's my opinion. I've been drinking it my entire life. It's fantastic. You've got to go to yachtclubsoda.com right now and check out all the amazing flavors they had. Uh, you know, once in a while, we'll let our kids have a little treat after dinner or something like that. And uh, we don't usually let them drink soda. But uh, last night, I, I had a bottle of orange cream from Yacht Club Soda. It's one of the best flavors they have. And uh, and uh, we let the kids have uh, a little bit of that. And they loved it. It's fantastic. It tastes just like a creamsicle uh, going down. So go to YachtClubSoda.com. Check out. They've got blue raspberry, pineapple, strawberry, grape, uh, cream, orange cream. Like I said, they've got uh, lemon lime, um, you know, regular cola and root beer and all that stuff. They've, they've, it's amazing. It's incredible. They come in glass bottles. They use real cane sugar. None of this uh, high fructose corn syrup stuff. So please go check it out today. It's YachtClubSoda.com. YachtClubSoda.com. Go and order some today. Okay. Also, uh, before we get into it, I want to tell you that uh, uh, as I'm recording this, actually tomorrow, uh, I've got some brand new pizza art coming out. Uh, so please go to at Eric John Art on Twitter and at Eric John Pizza Art on Instagram uh, and look out for that. I'm going to be making a lot of new pizza art now that the uh, the kids are back in school. I've got some more time on my hands here. Uh, summer's always slower when it comes to pizza art, but I'm going to be making a lot more. So please go check that out. Um, again, it's at Eric John Art and at Eric John Pizza Art. Okay, on the show today, uh, I've got another uh, presidential candidate here, uh, Joshua Smith. Um, Josh has run for uh, chair of the Libertarian Party, um, I think a couple of times, maybe once, uh, definitely once, uh, maybe twice. Um, and uh, he's been around a really long time. He's got his own podcast, too, of course. Um, and uh, he's, he's got tons of energy. Um, I really like the guy. Uh, and I think you'll be really interested to hear uh, what he's got to say. So uh, without further ado, uh, Joshua, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, man. I really appreciate it. So, um, I had I had another uh, presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party on the podcast, uh, Mike Termot, and so I feel like it's only fair to to ask you the same question I asked him um, to start off our interview uh, back that back then, um, which is just basic, you know, basically tell the people listening why you're running for president. Sure. So I, I have uh, been in politics since 2008. Of course, I came in with the Ron Paul uh, revolution um, and I watched how the Republicans treated Ron Paul. It really kind of soured me on the, the uniparty, I guess you could call it. Um, and uh, so I got involved in politics with the libertarian movement uh, and then eventually the party. Uh, I've been in the party since 2000, first time 2010 and then uh, rejoined in 2015. Uh, then ran for chair twice, uh, 2018, 2020, and then again for vice chair in 2022. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I, I, I had helped to move the Overton window in the Libertarian Party. It was a big contention for me to make sure that the Libertarian Party represented Libertarian beliefs and ideals. And uh, I didn't see that for a long time. And now we're at a point where it does. And so I was like, you know, having a really good, strong messaging, brave candidate 
that's willing to go out and say the things that need to be said needs to happen in 2024. Um, and I wasn't seeing it. Like I just wasn't seeing anybody doing it. Of course, we were all waiting for Dave Smith to announce. We, a lot of us had done a ton of work behind the scenes to, to pave the road for that. Um, and he, uh, of course, just recently and famously decided he wasn't going to run due to family stuff, which is fine. Uh, we can't, we can't force anybody to do anything they, they're not ready to do. Uh, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall, you know, a couple months ago. Um, I didn't see anybody that was brave, that was stepping up, that was getting the middle class involved, which is very important to me. Um, you know, these people that have been trampled on uh, by the U.S. government for many, many years. And uh, so I, I kind of just announced it on Facebook or on uh, Twitter as kind of a joke, to be honest with you, uh, with the campaign slogan, I guess I'll do it. Uh, but I had actually filed with the FEC. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was in my head, I had always kind of said, well, if no one else is going to do it, we'll step up. And if nobody else steps up for vice president, maybe we'll get a vice presidential bid going. Um, but it, it, it moved really fast. I mean, we have, you know, we, within a, a matter of a week, we had a 40 person campaign team. We're filed, we're raising money. Um, we have, uh, probably a hundred media requests sitting in the inbox, uh, and tons of travel requests. Of course we got on Tim cast recently. So, um, it's, it's been really, it's been really interesting to see the, the, the amount of people that want a middle-class candidate that is representing the blue, the, the blue collar working class in America, um, and not just some washed up, you know, doctor, lawyer, lifelong politician, one of these people that have never lived the middle-class life representing them on the national stage. And so, um, that's why I'm running, man. I'm running to be a voice, a mouthpiece for, for the, the people who feel the most slighted in America and, uh, hoping that I can, I can, you know, start a movement of people that are fed up. Well, you know, I can tell you, uh, just from my own experience as someone who, you know, who works a blue collar job with blue collar people. Um, you know, I think one of the things about you, I think that really does stand out um, in comparison to lots of the other sort of candidate types um, is the way you communicate. Like you, you do communicate in, in a very um, blue collar sort of way, the way you talk, you talk like a, just the average, like normal person talks. And I don't mean that to say that, you, you, I mean, you're, you're, your knowledge on so many issues is far beyond the average person, but you're able to speak in a way that that people can understand and, and that where they're not trying to figure out what is he saying? Um, you know, and, and Dave, uh, you know, has a very similar quality. Um, did you I mean, did you when it became clear to you that Dave wasn't going to run um, and, and it, it, apparently it became clear to a lot of people, you know, maybe a little bit longer before he actually announced, uh, as it became clear to everyone else. Um, is that when you decided that you, that you were going to run, um, when you, when you heard that he wasn't? Yeah. I mean, well, I, I decided prior to him, uh, saying that he wasn't going to run. I, I knew he wasn't going to run. I, I knew that if Dave was going to run, he would have announced a long time ago. Um, right. And so I kind of already knew. And I think a lot of people saw the writing on the wall, too. It wasn't just me. Um, I'm sure that Mike Heiss already knew and several people from the caucus already knew. Um, and and uh, it was it was kind of one of those things where it's like, man, I helped build this movement, you know, right. this, this caucus movement. Um, and we had all this momentum. And after the convention, it just kind of fizzled out, to be honest with you. And I wanted to see some body step up that could keep all those people engaged. And, um, I, I got a hold of a lot of people, you know, I, I asked people to run, I, I was hoping people would run and no one would. And so I just put my name out there as kind of like, you know, I helped build this movement, I, you know, back in 2018 and even in 2020, we didn't have a Dave Smith or a Tom Woods and, a, you know, all these people that were out here, uh, 
spreading the message of the Mises caucus. It was me. I was the guy. I was the one that went around the country. I had been to 48 states by 2022. Um, working for the for the caucus and the party and I had the the target painted on my back for a long time you know but for the people in the party to attack uh as the face of the Mises caucus and so I didn't want that movement to die out I didn't want to see it fizzle out I wanted to have an exciting candidate that could bring more people to that movement and I you know I'm not a huge name I don't have a I have a decently sized podcast but I'm not a stand-up comedian I'm not any of these things that some of these other guys are you know, I, I am just a blue collar working class guy, but I have read all the economics books. You know, I had to read through human action four times to finally get it. But <laughs> I did read. You're not the it. only one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just to and, let you know. and, you know, it's, it's like I do have this knowledge. I do have the knowledge of of the wrongdoings of central planning and the wrongdoings of the economy and the Federal Reserve and the warfare state and all these things. And and truth be told, if I wanted to go out and talk about it in a lecturing way, in a in an academic way, I could do that. But I don't want to. I don't want to do that because other people don't want to listen to the, me drone on and on and on about, you know, the the Federal Reserve and how they're causing all this mass chaos and the warfare state being propped up by the Federal Reserve. They don't want to hear the intricate de- details. They want to hear how you're going to improve their life because that's how middle class people are. And so I I intend to speak that way to help people understand how these things are damaging their life. But yeah, I just wanted to be the guy that uh, kept the movement alive. You know, I think uh, I was very close to the Ron Paul revolution. Of course, I worked on his ca- campaign in 2008 and then uh, was endorsed by him in 2020 for chairman of the, the National Party. And it's kind of on life support. And we had had the ball rolling and I wanted to I wanted to make sure that it keeps going. So we're, re- we're reviving it with this campaign. We're keeping people at the table. We're bringing new people to the table. And, uh, you know, we Dave would have been great, but we're going to do it without him. You know, there's there's few people uh, in this world, I think, are more dangerous to the establishment than uh, a blue collar guy with a solid understanding of Austrian economics. So I think, uh, (laughs) you know, I think um, you you definitely pose, um, you know, uh, even if just rhetorically, a very serious challenge to the establishment. You mentioned that you were just on Timcast, which was awesome. I mean, I watched the episode. I loved it. I I listened to the bonus um, podcast that was released uh, later that week. I thought you did an excellent job. What was that experience like going on a show like that? Yeah, so I was super nervous. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie and say, oh, I was all you know perfectly ready to go. But it was it was definitely nerve wracking. You know, this you have a podcast host who has over a million daily listeners uh, across all platforms. Millions of people are listening. I mean, there's a million people listening live, um, and it's it's a little nerve wracking. And, uh, then you show up and they've paid for your flight and your hotel. And, you know, you're like, oh, this is kind of like the big time, you know, yeah. this is, th- yeah. these people have, these people have more daily followers and listeners than CNN does. So we have to, you know, and I wanted to go in there and, and I told Tim and I had told the driver and everybody like, I'm not going to go in there and be the suit and tie candidate. And I just don't want you guys to think that's who I am. I, I do have suits, really nice suits that I've had tailored for me that I do wear to events. Um, but I'm not going to sit there on a podcast in a suit and look all stuffy. I want people to know that like we are just like you. I'm just like you, but I'm willing to take up the sword and fight. And so um, it was nerve wracking. And the first 40 minutes were a little rough for me. I was I was pretty shaky. Uh, but then I got into it and it was it, it became really it, it was, uh, you know, as as much as people say about Tim and Ian and and uh, um, Phil, who I love to death, uh, 
those guys are really cool, man. They're really, really down to earth. Super nice guys. Tim is amazing. Super nice. Came up to me after the show, talked to me about bringing me back and all this stuff. And just really, really nice guy, man, um, who does a lot for everybody. I mean, he's got an entire huge staff there, probably 40 people staff paid, you know, um, on this in this compound that has a skate park in the basement. Uh, and it was just a really cool experience to get to to live that out. You know, as a guy who just was a, a campaign guy for a while back in 08 and an anti-war activist. And then now here you are sitting on Tim Pool's podcast talking about running for president. It was a surreal experience and I appreciate it. Now we're looking at some other bigger shows too. We got, you know, we're working on trying to get on Sean Ryan's show. We're working on trying to get on Pat, Patrick, uh, 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 PBD as well. Uh, Patrick Bet David. And then, uh, of course we're, we're in talks with several other big shows too to get scheduled. So it's really a cool thing to, to know that you have this opportunity to get in front of all these people and spread these ideals. Uh, and it is, but it is nerve wracking, especially for just a regular old normal guy who doesn't do this all the time, you know? So, well, I didn't, I mean, I, I gotta be honest with you. I didn't pick up on that at all. It didn't, you didn't seem nervous. So, uh, if you were, then I, I think you contained it really well. I'd have to imagine it's tough to, um, it, it, it's tough to figure out, I would imagine when to jump in, when not to jump in, when you've got four other people um, talking, you know, back and forth and stuff. I, I have to imagine that's a, that can be difficult for anybody. And, I've, you know, I've always wondered um, uh, how, how challenging that must be. Um, yeah, it's well, it's, you know, it's Tim's show. And, right. and anybody who goes into Tim's show knows that Tim's going to do the majority of the talking. Um, but you just got to give your piece when it's when it's relevant. Right. And that's the important part, you know, and, and I was able to to jump in on, on the spots that I knew I could jump in. There was a ton more I could have said on everything. Whatever. I think you're right. You know, you're right about Phil, too. Like, I, I feel like he's jumped into that seat and, and done such a great job. He's been such a great addition to the show. And, and actually, I think the two of you really uh, played well off each other. You could tell there was a, there was sort of a kindred spirit there between the two of you guys. Yeah. Phil and I have been friends for quite some time. Oh, that's man. okay. So, so that makes sense. Then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, lo I love Phil to death and, uh, he knows that I love him and I spent an entire summer listening to one of his albums once, uh, in, through the whole summer. And so he, he knows, that's he awesome. knows I'm a fan and a friend and, and, uh, I've asked, I've, I've got the ask out to him to come and hang out with my delegates at national in DC. So that'd be cool. If you guys show up, we may have Phil, uh, Labonte there talking to you guys in the, in the hospitality suite. So, um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I know a lot of people in the movement and in the musical industry as well, because I played I was a touring musician for quite some time. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's a cool it's a cool spot to be to know that a lot of these metal guys and punk guys are actually libertarian and want to be part of this movement. It's really exciting. hell. Yeah, man. Um, so what do you think are the three main if you had to pick like three main issues that you would, um, you know, in, in, in speaking to the general public, I'm not even saying just libertarians. Right. Because um, ultimately. The, you know, running for president uh, is about, at least from my from my point of view, and if you feel differently, you can tell me. Um, but running for president as a libertarian is is a great opportunity to have a platform to try to change a lot of people's minds more than anything else. So if you're yes, talking yep. to the general public, um, the average person out there who maybe you know maybe libertarian and doesn't know it yet, or is it even someone who might be uh, more left leaning or uh, a neocon type. What are the three main issues that you're wanting to talk about to really reach those people? Well, I think the warfare state is very, very important. I think it's got to be at the forefront of anything that any libertarian does. We know how much it costs us um, and not just financially. We know how much it costs us 
uh, in human lives, uh, in in diplom in diplomacy, um, and and with that hand in hand goes foreign aid as well. You know, we, I've talked quite a bit about how twelve percent of the population in the United States is having a problem putting dinner on the table uh, for their children, and the middle class is not doing much better, and yet we're sending over two hundred billion dollars a year to two hundred countries around the world. Uh, that's got to stop. But we're, we're spending such a huge chunk on the national budget on warfare constant warfare, whether it be Ukraine or the Middle East or starting to run ops around Taiwan and China, which, by the way, in every single uh, war game that we've played in any kind of scenario around Taiwan, we lose, which is insane to think about. Um, and and so it's got to be at the top of everything we talk about. Of course, the Federal Reserve is very important to me, uh, but it's not something that really connects with a lot of people because they just don't understand the Federal Reserve. I could sit here and explain for hours about interest rates and inflation and printing money out of thin air and how they prop up the, the military industrial complex, but it just doesn't really hit with people because they don't understand the Federal Reserve because it was designed that way. It was designed as a an outside bureaucratic central banking system. Um, that isn't part of the federal government so that people don't have to understand it and the government can work with them any way they want. Um, and that's why, you know, the audit, the fed movement became so popular is because people are like, yeah, what is going on there? And, uh, you know, this new generation just doesn't get it, but it is important to explain to people why the federal reserve is harming their lives. And I, we have to do it in a way that people understand. And of course I've talked it, it ex exhaustively over the last three years about the COVID regime. I think that a lot of people feel very slighted by the COVID regime. I think people lost their businesses and their jobs and they were forced to take medical treatments they didn't want and mask and stay home and, and, you know, family members and friends died alone in the hospital. And, you know, there's people that are upset about that. And it's gotta be one of the top issues that any candidate in 2024 is talking about, especially with, with this coming back now with, with the whole uh, idea that we're going to go through this again, it's got to be a candidate that's got, has been good on the issue since the beginning. By the way, I have tweets from April of 2020 standing against this stuff. Um, but it's also got to be a candidate that's going to go out there and say no more. Um, and so that's got to be a really important thing. I, all these things are important to me, school choice and child protection when it comes to this new uh, push for gender affirming care. But Title 4D of the, the um Social Security Act is definitely at the top of my list as well. Uh, this is the title that has incentivized states uh, to separate families and create a visitor out of one parent and, and a, 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 a custodial parent out of the other parent. That way they can make money. The federal government pays the states $3 for every $2 they spend on child support enforcement programs. Um, so they've incentivized since 1975 when this was signed into law by, by Gerald Ford They've incentivized the separation of families. And if you look at the amount of fatherless homes since 1975, they've, ten they've increased tenfold. Um, and with that has come violent crime, uh, mass shootings, uh, drug use, dropout rate, homeless and runaway youth. All of these things have increased tenfold with this problem. Um, so when somebody comes at me about the gun issue, which I'm a, I'm a gun apps, I'm a self-defense absolutist. I mean, I want to get rid of the NFA. I want to get rid of the NCIS or the NICS. I want to get rid of the 1993 school gun ban. Uh, I want to get rid, I want to institute a national reciprocity constitutional carry act. Um, all these things, when, when, when people come at me about these things, I always tell them the same thing. It's not the guns. And they're like, it is the guns. I'm like, hey, have you ever heard of Title 4D of the Social Security Act? I want you to take a look at these stats. The stat is 71% of homeless and runaway youth are from fatherless homes. 
91% of mass shooters are from fatherless homes. Uh, you know, 84% of the, the, the violent offender youths sitting in jail right now incarcerated are from fatherless homes. It's so high. These stats are so high that it's undeniable, undeniable that they have a huge effect come from in a huge effect come from fatherless homes and and the increase of fatherless homes and now i don't want you know the women that are listening to this i don't want you to think that i only father i know this happens to mothers as well it's just like 93.8 percent of the time it's the man that's dragged through the, the the family law system and then treated as a visitor in their their child's life so that's that's the root cause, in my opinion, of all of the increase in violent crime and 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 dropout rates and all these things. That's the root cause. And if we don't address the root cause, then we're never going to get to the solution, which is having a better family life for our children, who are the most important future members of our society, um, and the most important people in their lives are their biological parents, always. And so incentivizing them to split up and incentivizing them to treat a parent as a visitor in their child's life is harming all of our children and it's destroyed our future and it's got to be fixed. And so that's a really big, uh, that's a really big issue for me. It's got to be in the top three. Um, and I think that people who understand that now, uh, that, that this, this family law system in America has destroyed the, the family unit. I think people understand that even people who haven't been through it are starting to see it. And we have to talk about, it. of course, Vivek has famously been talking about this issue. Now, of course, he never mentions title 40 of the social security act, but he has been talking about this issue. So it's good to see that there's big, huge platformed uh, people running for these positions that are talking about this issue because it's so important. So important. Do you, do you think that rolling back the influence of government, um, and I don't mean just a little bit. I mean significantly. Would, a lot of it. You know, yeah. Would sort of almost by its very nature um, force the culture to improve? Is that is that sort of like your belief? Yes. And it's <clears throat> it goes both ways too. Because I think that it's going to be very hard for people in my position or even Dave Smith's position to win these kind of elections without changing the culture first. And I think the culture war is absolutely amazingly important for anybody, especially third party candidates to take part in. And I said this on Tim, Tim Cass, and I think there's a lot of libertarians that are afraid to play the culture war game. I'm not, I'm not at all afraid. I think it's an important part of what we're doing. And if you are in politics, if you're involved in national, especially national politics, um, and you're not fighting the culture war, then you're dead in the water as a candidate, in my opinion. And it's it's proven to be true over and over and over again. If you watch these these hardcore extreme leftists that are involved in in politics, they're playing the cultural war game with your children. They're doing it. They're doing it every day, and they have to because it's the way that they've won. It's the way that they've taken our conservative, you know, mostly Christian uh, uh, nation and turned it into this crazy libertine. Uh, movement where we want to talk to children about gender and sexual identity at four or five years old. Um, and that was not, that's not something that would have been acceptable even 15 years ago. It wouldn't have been acceptable. And they're doing it at such a high rate that the conservatives are losing. And so if you ever want to get a stronghold back on that stuff and have kids grow up the right way, and you're going to have to fight the culture war at some point. Otherwise, you're just going to be the the least culture war guy getting loaded onto the boxcar when they're taking you to the gulag, my friend. And I can't be that guy. I got too many kids for that. Um, 
I got I got into a back and forth on Twitter recently with someone over the, the the issue of community, and you know I feel like it's a misconception that people have that libertarians don't care about community. Uh, you know, and probably because we spend such a good amount of our time going after communism uh, and socialism. But talk a little bit about how important community is in a libertarian society and how the expansiveness of government um, is is actually really detrimental to to having strong communities. Sure. Well, first of all, I want to start uh, this answer off by saying that uh, a good friend of mine, Patrick Smith, who is an absolute purist libertarian, one of the purists you'll ever meet in your life. Um, I, I stayed with his house. He's a great dude. Very good with kids. Super amazing guy. Um, and we had this conversation on my show. I had I brought him on my show and I said, you know, as far as your your view, what is the most important thing libertarians can do to change society? Like, you know, because you, he's he's very anti-party politics unless you're running to abolish it all, this kind of stuff, you know. So I wanted to hear from this very purist libertarian, like, what is your idea of of the best thing a libertarian can do? And he said, well, improve yourself. He said, because if you improve yourself, then you improve your family. If you improve your family, you improve your neighbors. If you improve your neighbors, you improve your community. And it kind of just struck me all at once, like, that is the most important thing we can do is to fix our community. Because as a as a beacon of hope, for other communities, it is is your community becoming a, a well-run community that doesn't need all this help? You know, we we come together, we we take care of each other, um, and you know, this there is some truth to this mutual aid uh, uh, theory that kind of came out of the left, to be honest with you, um, on a small scale. And I think it's an important thing to think about because even in a HAPA society, in a HAPA, you know, an, anarcho-capitalist society, we've taught we've had to have this discussion about uh, covenant communities and how important covenant communities are going to be and how important it is to have neighbors that appreciate and, and share your values and morals if to live in a, a sane and, and, uh, and fair society. And the federal government has gone out of their way to make sure that that can't happen. And I think one of the biggest, probably the biggest uh, example of that is the, is the Department of Educa- Education, which has uh, you know, incentivize states to standardize their teaching across the board all around the country. Um, and kids are just not standardized. That's just not how it works. And communities are not standardized. It's just not how it works. And, um, you know, we, it, since the inception of the Department of Education in 1971 or something like that, and I always forget the exact year, but uh, it hasn't been very long. We'll put it that way. Um, and uh, since the inception of the Department of Education, our our uh, spending on federal education dollars has more than quadrupled. And in that time, children's test scores have largely stayed the same or dropped. Um, our dropout rates are much, much, much higher. Uh, we have kids now that, that do graduate school, but don't ever do anything else with their life um, because they weren't taught any useful skill, skills on, you know, they weren't book smart. They were just smart enough to remember how to pass tests and then not smart enough in anything else that, that they, you know, all the time they could have been spent learning how to be an electrician or uh, how to do, you know, uh, uh, CPA work or how to, you know, enter data into computers. All this time that they could have been learning that they, they were focused on memorizing stuff for tests and passing these tests because the government told them that this is the way that we know you're smart enough to be a human. Uh, and so that's got to go. The Department of Education has got to go. We got to get away from this standardized across the board nationally school system. Um, and, uh, I think that that's the very beginning of fixing community. Uh, you know, as, as a, a man with a wife who homeschools several of our kids, uh, we know that there's homeschool communities out there 
that I think that's so important. And there's so many states in the country that don't allow that. Uh, thankfully, here in Iowa, we have the opportunity to have full school choice and choose whoever we want uh, to teach our kids. Um, but there's communities of school uh, of homeschools. I mean, literally, there's like a you know, well, on Wednesday and Monday and and Friday, uh, Lori down the street teaches our kids, and then on you know the other two days, we teach her kids, and it's it's a really cool thought. But why do so many states not let people do that? I mean, when when did we decide? that our kids are not ours and the government gets to dictate what we do with our children. And that's, you know, that's the biggest hit on community in my opinion. Uh, but there's so many other ways too, as far as taxes and, you know, this gun legislation that they pass all the time, which really hurts the lower income people. Um, you know, when it comes to theft and violence and things like that, you know, people that live in these communities that are low, low income, uh, in a state that doesn't allow, uh, you know, you to defend yourself and from dictated from these national federal regulations, you know, it's, it just, the crime increases and increases. We're watching it happen in California right now, all day long. I mean, people are getting robbed. Cars are getting robbed, uh, with people in them in broad daylight, people getting their bikes stolen, uh, you know, stores getting just absolutely looted at two 30 in the afternoon on a Wednesday, and nobody can do anything about it. So, you know, what a better way to ruin a community than to basically outlaw the good guy with a gun or the good guy who could protect people or any kind of self-defense. And that's, you know, the federal government has set that precedent. They really have. And they go after the good people, you know, like Ross Ulbricht, who started a e-commerce site that the government couldn't touch couldn't tax and they gave him two and a half life sentences or Julian Assange who you know was doing truthful honest reporting you know it's 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 just crazy and so they've they've hurt community in several ways but I think that those are really important ways to focus on how we can start making community better at a federal level you mentioned homeschooling um is it as hard as people think it is uh you know it depends on where you live I think, first of all, there's several states that won't allow you to do it unless you go through all kinds of rigorous training. Um, here in Iowa, like I said, thankfully, we're very lucky where you can just homeschool your kids and you don't have to even tell the government. Um, but it, it can be challenging, especially financially, if you have to both work. And I get that. But should those people be forced to put their kids in public school because they're paying for it with their, their uh, property tax and other federal dollars? No. No, they shouldn't. There should be options. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's homeschool communities where people are homeschooling kids and they take on other kids to homeschool them too while you're at work and pay as much as you're going to pay the babysitter anyways. So, I mean, there's, there's options if the government gets their hands out of it. Uh, but for now, I understand that it, it is, it can be hard for some people. I mean, it does, it does seem reasonable that, you know, like a, a nice little tax rebate for homeschooling your kids, you know, makes, seems to make some sense. I mean, you well, are you're paying saving. for it. Yeah, and you are saving, uh, you know, the the township or wherever you live, uh, some some amount of money. Um, yeah, the county for sure. Yeah, the county for technically. sure. Technically, um, yeah. so let, let's let's talk a little bit about war and peace. Um, I talked with Austin Peterson um, recently, and um, you know, because I was really curious about his evolution on things and and 
how his views have changed. And he was very critical of um, the, the, the anti-war libertarians. Um, and I think his point, just to give him, you know, just the most charitable interpretation of what he was saying, um, is that is, is not the fact that they're anti-war per se or, or, you know, are against these wild U.S. interventions, which he also is, but um, that it's, it goes too far. Um, and that um, the country does need a really strong defense and that there are situations where, um, you know, there are clear good guys and clear bad guys. Um, where, where do you stand on uh, the matter of war and peace in general? But then also, like, what would a what would a defense department look like under a President Josh Smith? Sure. So I, I've talked pretty extensively about this, of course, I I. I am done with foreign entanglements entirely. Um, NATO's got to, got to go. We're, we're the, the biggest funder of NATO. Um, so we got to stop funding NATO. We need to pull out of NATO. We need to bring all of our troops home. Um, and, and I know that, that, uh, AP and I disagree on some things, especially, apparently it sounds like he's a, he, he thinks that we have to have a CIA, uh, for, for international spy craft and stuff like that. And I, I disagree uh, to a, to an extent, of course, the biggest problem with the CIA is that nobody really knows what's going on at the CIA, right? Um, so we got to get in there and figure out what the hell's going. We got to shut it down until we figure out what's going on. Um, and uh, you know, maybe there are some uh, important things when it comes to spycraft, like uh, intercepting attacks on the United States. Maybe that's very important, a very important part of the CIA. Um, but as far as I can tell, they haven't done much of that. Uh, and when there has been attacks in in history, uh, the government that knew about it didn't do much about it to begin with. So, um, but we gotta we gotta get out of this war in Ukraine and Russia. We gotta not be, you know, poking the bear with China over Taiwan. I believe that Taiwan is absolutely one hundred percent just a tripwire to a full scale hot war with China and Russia. Um, so we gotta stop playing those games. We absolutely cannot play kingmaker in the Middle East anymore. It's got to stop. We have toppled entire regimes and and made the entire region unstable. Um, and just all of that, just to put bases around Iran is ridiculous. And so uh, I want to shut down a lot, uh, almost probably most of the military bases abroad, bring our troops home, give them a more uh, a more rigorous mental health care than they're getting now so that we're not losing uh, a vet every eight minutes by suicide. Um, and uh, get them reintegrated in the regular life with their family. And then, of course, I am not anti-national defense. I think that national defense is important for a country. If a country is going to be a country, they should have some kind of defense system. Um, I have talked extensively about ending the income tax entirely and setting up a, uh, essentially a giant federal government go fund me for military stuff. Um, if, the, if the patriotic Americans of America would like to have a national security I'm more than 100% positive they'll have no problem donating 10 to 20 bucks a month, especially if they're not paying income taxes anymore. Um, and then, of course, I want to set up user fees for the federal government. If if you're not using the federal government as American, there's no reason whatsoever to be paying the federal government. And so uh, user fees, you know, we, we can talk about what those are going to be and how we're going to use those. Um, you know, for, for now, we have national parks. Of course, those are already user fees. Uh, of such, but we've got to get away from this insane tax and spend plan uh, policy that we've had for since 1913. Um, and uh, one one way to do that is to bring our troops home and stop fighting wars that cost us a third of our national budget every year. So 
Uh, I have got to, I have got to see an end to war. We have got to set up more peaceful diplomatic relationships with countries around the world. Um, and that means no more foreign aid unless we are trading, uh, which I think is very important because we do send all kinds of countries money every year. Like I said, 12% of our population can't put food on the table and we're sending, uh, uh, several billion dollars to, to uh, Israel every year. It's gotta stop. Um, and so, uh, that's where I stand on it. It's a little more hardcore than AP for sure. But I think that, you know, the fact that I want to have a national security system of some sort still uh, is important. It's an important distinction, probably from some of the other libertarian party candidates as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I stand on it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think even, even for me as an anarchist, like I, you know, I, I, I'd rather everything be private, but assuming that we, you know, that we don't have a privatized, uh, national defense that's funded by insurance or something like that um obviously right. we're going to have a national defense that's funded by a you know the government that does exist no matter however small it becomes if it does become smaller um so yeah i think any any service in business that people are not willing to voluntarily pay for should not exist period and that includes the government and so i am at at heart an anarcho capitalist and I do believe that we can totally operate, especially without the federal government. That being said, there's other people in this country that may not feel the same way. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we'll find that out real quick when we abolish the income tax and see how much people are willing to fund. And that's, I think that's an important distinction there too. If they are willing to fund a national defense, then we should probably have a national defense. If they are willing to fund national parks and national park roads, then maybe we should have those. Um, but if we, but if they're not willing to fund those things, then they should go the way of the dinosaur. And I, I think this, you know, I think that about most things that the federal government does now bureaucracies, like unelected bureaucracies and, and, uh, um, departments like the ATF and the IRS and the FBI and a lot of these places that, um, have really become outlets to infringe on the natural human rights of every American. Those got to go. <clears throat> but as far as services rendered from the federal government if people are willing to pay for them then maybe they deserve to have them but other than that it doesn't need to be there anymore it is pretty interesting like especially something like war where if you're gonna be in a war like with another country you, you need buy-in from the vast vast majority of the population um and it's kind of interesting how you know it's, it's it's sort of similarly to education and the way you know the, the fact is there's a lot of parents out there who just who aren't that invested in their kids education um they don't know what's going on in the classroom um you know and i'm talking about the just the country as a whole um you know they, they don't go to school board meetings they they don't know um you know what their teachers are doing and what they're not doing and i think a lot of that is because they don't have buy-in it's just there it's something that their kids go and do and you know they're not actively a participant in it anymore um, and I think war is, it seems like a sort of a similar thing. If, if you had a situation where the country goes to war and you need people to buy war bonds in order to uh, finance the thing, you, you know, you, you get buy-in from people. And if people supported the war, like you said, I'm sure they'd be happy to buy war bonds to help support the effort. And if they're not, then they're not supportive of it. It does seem sort of like common sense, right? Right. Absolutely. 100%. And, and uh, I think that's an export, a very important distinction. That's got to be made um, that, you know, we're not going to war. And I've, I've said that, you know, I'm signing an EO right away that says no more war whatsoever unless it's congressionally approved, period. 
Uh, we haven't had a congressionally approved war since World War II. It looks like we've been in quite a few wars, but no, not war, right? Um, and so we got to stop sending our troops to fight in wars that aren't even approved by Congress, uh, let alone the majority of the population of the United States. I'd say the last war that was actually approved by a majority was probably Afghanistan, and look how bad that went. Uh, and that also didn't have congressional uh, approval. So uh, we spent 21 years there. So yeah, it's it's an important distinction that we we say that we're going to end the wars, and the only way we're going back to war is if it's uh, actually approved by Congress and supported by the people. Other than that, no more. That's it. You know, one one thing that often troubles me uh, about the libertarian movement and the anti-war movement movement, and something that I have trouble getting on board with is sometimes I do feel like the rhetoric. Uh, from anti-war folks, and I consider myself one of those people, um, is, I don't know, is, it's almost like a little too anti-veteran or, or even like anti-police than I'm sometimes comfortable with. Um, do you think sure. the libertarian movement uh, and you know, maybe the, the anti-war, anti-police aspect of it um, has, a, has a problem in that area? Yes. And, and I think that it's a, a really bad blind spot as a veteran myself who became a veteran or became an anti-war activist because my, I was a veteran. I can tell you that the most important uh, anti-war voices in this country, in the world, are veterans because they're the ones who have actually been there and seen it and understand the policy. And they're the ones who know how to talk to other veterans and other active duty service members. Um, when you just start calling an active duty service member a, a killer and a murderer and saying that they kill people for a living and that they're welfare whores and all this stuff, uh, you're never going to get that person on your side anymore. You've now lost that person for good. And so um, I do really hate when they do that, man. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. I, I, I'd much rather have somebody say, hey, man, I, 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 uh, I want the country to, to care about you, but I also want you to understand that our mission was corrupt. And I think that that's the most important message that we can make to veterans is that the mission we were lied to about is corrupt and we uh we acted under false pretenses uh for all kinds of different things such as money for school or a place to live or whatever your your uh, your reason for joining the military was we acted under false pretenses because we were lied to and uh our mission is corrupt and we need to start looking into how to stop the corrupt missions as veterans that's a, such an important voice for us and an important message for us to pass along. And uh, the only way we do that is, is through the Liberty movement. Um, and the only way they're going to join the Liberty movement is if we stop, you know, trash talking them when they should be on our side. You know, I had, um, I had George Luz Jr. on the show recently. Um, and his, his father was featured in the show Band of Brothers, of course, on HBO. And, you know, one thing I've learned, I learned from talking to him um, about veterans and about people who are in the military and who have been in war and things like that is that people join up for a whole bunch of different reasons. But once they're there, um, you know, the, the vast majority of their motivation behind everything they do is is for their buddies. Right. It, it's to protect the yeah, guy it's camaraderie for it's sure. to protect the guy next to them. Yeah. Um and yeah, I do. I agree with you. I think that's a huge blind spot. And, and I, I, I would say the same thing for the police. I'm not sure if you agree with that as well, but it's really hard for me to equate, um, you know, the, the ATF agent storming Waco, um, you know, or shooting uh, at the Weavers at Ruby Ridge or something like that to, you know, the rural small town cop who's, you know, 
driving around pulling over drunk drivers, for instance. Like I, I just, sure. it's, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, yes, and no. I am pl- I am pro police reform. I think that the police need to absolutely be reformed. I think we do have a violence problem when it comes to mo- especially big city police. Um, and I understand that there's a lot more violence in these big cities, but we can't just shoot first and ask questions later. That's an important that's an important message to pass along when we're talking about the police. I'm not anti-police, especially not in the current society. I think that's a crazy absolute utopian ideal that they that we don't need anybody out there protecting property and life. Um, but I think that a lot of cops no longer are interested in protecting property and life and they're more interested in, in catching people after the fact. Um, and I think they forgot that, you know, that's, that's your job is to protect people, not to hurt them. Um, and so we need to get away from that. And I think it's a culture problem as well. You know, I don't, I don't think it's only a political problem. I think it's also a cultural problem, but we are military militarizing police departments all around the, the country. I mean, we militarize basically every, uh, federal agency as well of, of, of any type. I mean, the, the department of education has a SWAT team, you know, and that's insane. They, uh, they're doing full on, uh, firearm training in the IRS for God's sakes, uh, I think we've gotten to this to this point where it's so pro militarization of the police that we need to start rolling some of that back and remember that, you know, police officers used to take their hats off when they came to your door to talk to you. You know what I mean? Um, and That's a, a good respect- point. That's a very good point. A, yeah, it was a two way respectful road. And uh, while they are the people there put in place to protect uh, liberty and or pr- to protect rights. Uh, sorry. They're not there to protect rights and liberty, to protect uh, property and and life. Um, They also are there to uh, uh, be respectful of people. And and we need to find some way to bring that respect back, because if the police aren't going to be respectful of people, people aren't going to respect the police back. It's just how it is. It's how it is in everyday life. Anywhere you go, if you if you're disrespectful to people, they're not going to respect you back. And cops have gotten this this pro uh, disrespect attitude where they yell and scream and cuss at you before you've even talked to them. And uh, it's got to stop. It's really got to stop. And I think setting that tone from the federal level as far as deep demilitarization of, of a lot of these federal agencies can really uh, go a long way into uh, breeding uh, a friendly and respectful relationship between the people who enforce, you know, good laws, important laws like don't murder, don't steal um, and the and the public. Yeah, my my um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a cop. He was, a, you know, a small town cop. And, uh, you know, he used to like go to the local high school and they'd have like wrestling yes. events and like just make yep. sure stuff didn't get out of control, you know? So it's like when I see people being like, you know, all cops are criminals and that kind of thing, that's, that's sort of what I, jumps into my brain. It's like, yeah, my, my, you know, the only person, I think the hard, the hard part about that is with, especially with libertarians is there's so many laws that are, are not, that are not just laws that police enforce, um, that, that it makes it hard to respect somebody who would enforce those laws, even if they know they're probably not a very just law. Right. Um, and so that's, that's where the big breakdown right. is. And it's hard for me too. You know, I, I immediately question police when something bad happens, you know, I, I immediately question police too. And I'm not a criminal. I've ha- I haven't gone to jail. I don't have a criminal record. I don't have a lot of interactions with police, but I still get worried. You know what I mean? Like right away. And so I think that's it's an important thing that if they want the trust back, then there's some steps that need to be made to get that trust back. And um, and and I think that it'll come back if if those things are are done. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people shouldn't get nervous when, a you know, if you're sitting there in that high school and you're watching a wrestling event, you shouldn't get nervous when the police officer walks in the room. And if that's right. happening, then there is something 
there's there's something wrong, right? There's something there's something that needs to be fixed. So I I, I agree with you there. Um, let's just talk really quickly. I want to talk to you just from a practical standpoint here. Now, obviously, you know, the chances of you being elected president are zero. Okay. Right. And I'm sure you would probably agree with that. I'd put it at like 0.5%. 0.5%. You never know. Fine. 0.5%. But let's say you were elected president and you, you know, which would obviously this would be a great day. A lot of us would be very excited. Uh, And you walk into the Oval Office on the first day and the intelligence apparatus that is obviously still there um, because you haven't been in power yet um, walks in and you know, for lack of a better term, you know, they, they show you this Zapruder film and they're like, look, you're going to do what we say or else you're going to get hurt or something bad's going to happen to your kids or whatever. Um, what do you do? Because for me, that's the big question. It's like, how, do, how, like, how does this thing really ever get changed when they're the ones with that really have all that power? Yeah, that's a you know, it's something that I thought about quite extensively. Uh, you know, and it is a real possibility as well. And I've, you know, I think the joke, the running joke is that I tell people there's no way I'm going to uh, join any parades in Dallas in a convertible. <laughs> That's probably smart. I agree. Um, but I, you know, they're going to have to, I, I, I'm not going to listen. If I get elected before I get elected, I, I, if we're going to know that we're close to getting elected. We're going to know that, that that's an, a possibility because we'll be very high in the polls and stuff. That's a good um, point. And of course we're going to put some fail safes in place and, and, and stuff like that, because you know, there is a very real possibility that intelligence may take me out. Um, but you know, hopefully we have a good vice president they can't take us both out. I mean, at some point you have to, you have to realize that if 150 million people elect you or, or sorry, 55 million people or hundred million people or whatever elect you, uh, and then you're shot in the oval office, there's going to be some questions, you know, um, and that's why they had to go to such extensive, uh, in my opinion, the CIA had to go to such extensive lengths to get JFK out of there. Um, and, uh, you know, I know it's not proven, but eh, we know. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I thought about that and that's something that we're going to have to have a lot of fail safes and, and, uh, uh, you know, death boxes for if, you know, if, should I go down then the media is going to have a lot of stuff sent out to them and, and they're just going to have to deal with that. You know what I mean? And, and, and I will have gone out and hopefully, uh, helped to start a new culture of distrust in the government. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a good sign that you've actually thought about this and, you know, it amazes me to, you know, the extent to which pe- some people haven't thought about it, um, because it does seem like the obvious sort of thing that would might happen. Um, but, you know, has anything like weird happened to you over the oh, last yeah. 10 years or have you gotten weird messages oh, yeah. or threats? You have. Yeah, we had we had a straight up uh, army intelligence, like disinformation person that was trying to get close to me uh, in, in like 2018. Um, and he was, he was, he ran a page called the Orthodox Libertarian on, on, uh, on Facebook and his name was Todd and he said he trained dogs or something. And, um, he was a big fan of Austin Peterson and, um, and then he started getting close to me and inboxing me and we were talking back and forth a bunch. And, um, and then all of a sudden he was calling me a Nazi online out of the blue. And we were like, what the fuck? And I had a friend actually dox this guy and found out that he worked for a federal police department, um, had been uh, some kind of disinfo or information expert in the in the military, some kind of classified job. Um, and uh, I 
got all these, all this stuff. He found, you know, my buddy found him through his parents and all this stuff. And I took all these screenshots of all this stuff and I sent it to the guy and he deleted his entire account, deleted the, the Orthodox libertarian page that he was running everything gone overnight. So like, we know, we know that you're, you're watching us. Like we know I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I, I know for a fact, it's pretty chilling. I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. It's pretty chilling. Cause I, just as someone who has, you know, I got two little girls, like something like that happened to me, man, that, that would scare the crap out of me. I gotta be honest with you. Just, I know what's happening. I know it's been happening um, for a long time, man. So that's, well, I can't imagine that that's an easy thing to, to deal with. And obviously you, you know, there was also a lot of really just bullshit shenanigans that um, I remember you having to put up with when you were running for chair. Um, with Still the old, happens. The old Still guard. Every day. Yep. Yeah. The old guard and the Libertarian Party. You know, all that stuff that went on. And just for people listening who don't know, I mean, I'll just give a really basic rundown here. I mean, basically, the, the, they they got your your older, you know, one of your older daughters involved in, in and were harassing her and all this really nasty, horrible stuff. Do you think that was any of that potentially um, driven by um, the powers that be? Do you think that the old guard and the Libertarian Party um, was infiltrated by yes. some of these forces? 100%. 100%, yes. And and it, I'm not going to drop any names here. You don't have to. But That's not, but I, not but I can, But I can tell you that I know almost 99% for sure about two of them. Um, that were some of the biggest culprits of the attacks on me and my family, um, being either compromised or agents themselves, definitely compromised, I would say. Um, so I, I know that that happens and I know that that was a part of it. Um, and, and they did a, a much similar thing to what that Todd guy did to me and tried to be my friends first. Um, which I thought was really interesting that that's how they work. They try to get close to you and learn as much information as they can. And then they started attacking um, and so, yes, I do believe that. I also think there's a lot of useful idiots, um, who go along with this agenda to, to harm me because they don't like me, but they don't realize that 98% of it is absolute fabrication. Right. Um, and so it is what it is and I'm going to deal with it. And I've been dealing with it for the last six years. Yeah. About six years now. Um, and I'm going to continue to wade through their bullshit. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. If I stop doing what I'm doing, then other people will stop doing what they're doing and we lose. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's, it's not worth it, uh, because this is the one opportunity I have as a father to try and make a more free and just society for my children. So. Well, uh, Josh, I think it shows a lot of courage and, um, I think doing what you're doing, uh, even if you weren't running for president, just be, just being out there talking about this stuff, the way you do. Um, I really think you deserve a lot of credit, man. And, um, I really wish you nothing but the best going forward, dude. I, I think you're a great voice for those of us who believe in Liberty. Um, and you, again, like you said, you're just a, you really are just like a regular guy, you know, working blue collar job and you got, uh, you got seven kids. I think you said on, yeah, we have, we have six in the house currently. Uh, okay. Seven on the way. Well, sorry. We got one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six. Yes. Yeah, so we have six in the house currently with one on the way. Um, and my older, my oldest daughter moved out last year. So okay. uh, we, we had I love the counting. Seven. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> we had, we had seven in the house. One of them was actually my granddaughter. And then my oldest oh, wow. daughter and my granddaughter moved out. And then, we wow. had, and then we had my son Rocco in August of last year. So grandpa, had, congratulations. Gra- I'm a grandpa made- times, times two, man. My, That's my, amazing. My grandson Phoenix was just born a few months ago as well. So I have a granddaughter named Scarla and a grandson named Phoenix. And of course that's my oldest daughter who was the one that, that, uh, 
the people in the party harassed and uh and uh i went at a time when i was fighting for custody of her uh for several years well it and, seems like you're in a much better place now than then yeah. um you got you know you, you get a nice family there uh you know you, it kind of sounds like you're like the dad in the the beginning of caddyshack who's like grabs <laughs> grabs the kids like honey who is this yeah i i, I regularly have to run through th- four or five names especially when i'm upset till i get to the right name and sometimes the dog's name even gets in there of course Uh, so it's yeah it's just kind of how it is um i you know i'll I'll be the i'll be the Uh, 70 year old like i gotta call uh i gotta call one of those kids which one was it uh you know and i'll be that guy there's no doubt after 70 for sure well, God bless you, man. That's uh, you got a lot on your plate, and um, and you know, I think you, you handle it all really well. So, um, please, please tell everybody uh, where they can learn more about your campaign, how they can follow you on social media, uh, all that stuff. Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the the one place where I'm the most reachable and uh, the most active is Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter at Joshua at large. And then, of course, the campaign website is joshuasmith2024.com. You can do several things there. You can sign up to volunteer for the campaign and become a delegate. You can um, uh, financially help the campaign, which is super important for libertarian candidates. Uh, we spend our dollars like three to one compared to the national the, the the uniparty. They go your dollars go a lot further in our campaigns. Um, and then, of course, you can sign up for the email list there as well. All of our videos, our platform and stuff are there as well. Uh, and then also, uh, you can check out my show. I do a show once a week, typically on Thursday nights called Break the Cycle with Joshua Smith. You can find that on YouTube at uh, youtube.com backslash fight the despots. And I'd love to have you guys there. Well, Josh, thanks again for joining me. And I uh, hope to talk to you soon. For sure. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I got to go. Go where? Maybe we just got it. I got that thing. I got to go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.